So at one point when we were recording the episode for the pilot of Star Trek Discovery, I'd said that I was really excited for episode four, because, like, at one and two were the prologue. Episode two is kind of the real pilot, given the, you know, here's our actual situation, here's the bulk of our cast, and four was going to be kind of the first real episode. And as the first real episode, I think I really... I I liked this episode very much, and I think I feel very comfortable with the tone, finally. I think it's been very coy about it, but this was Star Trek the whole time. It's just, there's a lot of crap around it, which clearing out that crap is, I think, what this show is about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally with you. I mean, I, I will not lie when I say that I cried at a certain point in this episode. Was it? Was it? Yes. Yeah. It, it was when the tardigrade was going around the little spore thing and it was suddenly cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, and, and this is the thing about this episode is that I was, I was so worried. I mean, I think mm. I was more worried about the show after last week's episode, Context is for Kings, than I knew when we recorded. I mean, obviously, this is... I mean, let's talk about this. So we don't usually do this, right? We don't usually sit down almost immediately after watching an episode and and discuss it. And and really, we don't have a lot of time to think about things. We don't have a lot of time to... to we, we have no time to rewatch it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't rewatch episodes even, but, but I have seen, you know, every single Star Trek episode multiple times over the course of, of 20, 25 years to the point where I am now using dubbed French TNG to help <laughs> myself uh, get familiar with uh, understanding spoken <laughs> French more because I'm trying to yeah. learn French and I think this is probably a good way to do it. I think that so works. so I am, I am, you know, a pretty crazy Star Trek fan. And over the past week, you know, I watched Context is for King probably two more times over the past week. And I, I was a little concerned. I think that... You know, the end of Context is for Kings, when, when Lorca is in his, his chamber of horrors and it, you've got that very sort of serialized television moment of what is the mystery here, the mystery den of horrors, what is going on with this? And, you know, within the first five, in ten the minutes cold open. of... Right. In the cold open of this episode, which incidentally may be one of the longest cold opens in Star Trek history, I clocked it at like seven and a half, mm. eight minutes. I think there's a couple DS9 ones that are longer, but for the most part, I, you know, it's up there. Um, and I, I will look on Memory Alpha in about an hour to see if anybody has updated it. But, you know, I, you get to that point in the episode when Lorca is showing Burnham around his chamber of horrors and saying, here is my chamber of horrors. <laughs> I am using all of this information to try and win the war. And here is the monster that I took. And I'm like, yeah. oh, show, you totally played me. Yeah. I was really worried that you were going to be spinning this out as some sort of secret thing. And you're not. You're totally being open and and uh, just in not I will. I won't go so go so far as to say in good faith, but. I, I I was I was okay with that. I think it was a it was good it was a good thing that the show did. Yeah, and for that matter, I mean, we speculated a little on the podcast and a little offline about G. Is this because the big question is obviously why does spore transportation not work? Why don't we have it ten years later in Kirk's day? Why don't we have it for, on on Voyager? And so there has to be a reason and. Part of my speculation is, well, gee, what if he's lying and this isn't actually what... Well, in this episode, we find out, no, spore technology actually is spore transportation technology. It's it's what it says it is. There will be another reason, and 
I think this episode is suggesting certain reasons why this might not be, uh, but it's not a, it's, he wasn't playing Burnham in that, you know, he wasn't lying about what its purpose was. And I appreciate that very much. Um, see, what, yeah. I, what I am thinking one of the major themes of the series is going to be that, you know, I, I, I was reading somebody saying that um, so much television is about, well, you know, so much post 9-11 television is about, you know, we have to make the hard decisions in order to keep, you know, keep safe. Even DS9 went into a lot of that stuff like um, in the Pale Moonlight, you know, pretty much says that. Yes, during a time of war, we have to get our, as Kira once says, you know, everybody has to get a little dirty. And, you know, you have to make these difficult decisions. You have to make moral choices that don't, don't have a, have an easy answer. And what I would really love to see a show do is saying, well, nuke the bastards is the easiest decision of all, right? If Donald fucking Trump can come up with that, if a Trump voter can come up with that, then that must not be a very sophisticated answer, right? That must be just so knee-jerk and animalistic. And the hard decision is really the one that is diplomacy, that is peace. And in this episode, we are, I think, seeing the beginnings of that, that, you know, this is a federation that's going through one of its first real major challenges, something that is an existential threat to itself, and it is reacting to that by, okay, we're going to weaponize everything. And I think in the character of Burnham is going to be the conscience of the show, which is saying, wait, no, we're the Federation. We actually can't do this. We we need to be better than this. And so if the Federation in... we, We were talking a lot about how, you know... I mean, the big question about, I guess, every new Star Trek show is, you know, back to back to the next generation is, is this Star Trek? And again, I think there is a lot in the Federation right now at this point in time that is not the best that it can be. But I think this is a show which does recognize that the Federation is better than this. And the show is about how it's going to get to that point. Yeah, because I, I, I think that everyone that was wor- – I, I agree with all of that, and I, I think that everyone that was worried about whether or not this was going to be a Star Trek show, and what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, you know, engaging with the world in good faith and a spirit of optimism and, and respecting life and all of those things, right? And, you know, I think that if nothing else, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry answers that question, yes, this this is a Star Trek show. You know, I, I think that – it's interesting to me. One of the one of the I think challenges of the show is that it's not telling a self contained story. It mm. is telling a serialized narrative. And you know, at the end of this episode, I I was a little concerned about the fact that no one raised any sort of issues or that they didn't raise any sort of objections about the fact that they strapped in, you know, the tardigrade. And I will call him Ensign Tardigrade because I think I want him to be an Ensign on the ship. Um, you know, I, I, I was I was concerned that no one raised their hand and said, hey, you know, uh, this worked, but also we were torturing this thing or apparently it yeah. was not great. He was in pain or she was in pain or it was in pain or whatever. Um, we can't do this. This is not something we can do again. But that's not the structure of this show. This is not a story about them finding this technology in one episode and then discovering that they need this living organism to strap mm-hmm. into this machine to use it. 
oh, we can't do that. Okay, now it's time to end the episode. Next week, we're going to be doing a completely different thing. Yeah. That's not what this show is. And so, you know, a, a question I have in my mind, you know, Burnham is obviously very on board with the idea of we should not be using the tardigrade this way. Yeah. I can already see a very, very dramatic scene in, an, in a later episode between her and Lorca or between her and Saru plotting against Lorca or something like that to, to make sure that they don't strap the tardigrade creature into yeah. that machine again. But I, I think that that's kind of I, I want I, I want that to happen. I need that to happen. You know, that yeah. is the part of it that I'm still a little bit concerned about. I mean, I think that that's going to be a, a going concern kind of saying, yeah, I'm a little concerned where this is going. But I will tell you that, again, the show just undercutting itself at the end of the third episode at the beginning of this episode and saying, oh, are you worried about Lorca's Chamber of Horrors? Mm -hmm. Don't worry about it. We got you. Yeah, I think that scene was so ominous in retrospect because of what it represents that Lorca has been taking essentially all of these trophies and figuring out, you know, all of these instruments of death and torture and figuring out how can we visit that on our enemies. Um, I mean, I think it's very... The, the scene that I found very instructive was, you know, when Anthony Rapp is saying, like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to leave the ship and I'm going to take everything. And, you know, Lorca's like, this is all Starfleet property. Like, you're not going to have anything. And he name drops Elon Musk, which I have problems with. Uh, but, yeah, I don't. But, I, that was n not good discovery. Don't do that again. On the other hand, what if that is a suggestion that Lorca is a douchebag and that's why he admires Elon Musk? But that's a different <laughs> Um, you know, and also the character of Landry, who, okay, I did not expect her to die, by the way. That was a shocking swerve. Um, uh, and I have, I have to say, not, to, not to cut you off, but, but I think that Landry, I hope we see in a flashback because she was so transparently yeah. villainous or, or just, I, I don't know how I feel about her character. I think that she was a little transparent Whoa. and, yeah, she died, and I was not expecting her to die, and it was her fault that she died. I am not, you yeah, know, I am not going to to downplay that, but I kind of feel a little weird about her death. But anyway, yeah, I guess what I feel is that Lorca has picked his crew, right? Like everybody who is on the uh, Discovery at this point has been personally vetted and chosen by Lorca. And I think he knows how to play everybody. I think he knows how to keep everybody in line. He's extremely charismatic. He is very, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he kind of is a Sengali in some ways. And I think he has figured out how to get everybody to follow orders, if you know what I mean. I mean, there, there are, I think maybe, at, I, I get the sense that many people on the crew, including maybe even Landry, which part of the reason she might be so cold in her scenes is because she's kind of trying to repress it because she can't deal with the, what would invite, what would involve going against orders. Um, I, th and I think his big mistake is in choosing Burnham. I think he doesn't, obviously doesn't read her as well as he thinks he does. I think he thinks he knows every crew member's button and how to push them and how to get them to do what he wants. And he thinks he knows Burnham's because, well, she went against order. She needs to make the tough decisions, but he doesn't necessarily recognize that she is not motivated by contrarianism or violence or mutiny or anything like that, but by what's do, but what, what is right. I think that that is his misread. And so I, I, I think that's why nobody on the crew 
objects because I mean I mean the scene where he plays the recording of the child screaming you know mommy mommy wake up like I almost laughed at that because it's such a cliche in a way but he knows what's going to motivate his crew and he knows that you know as Tilly says at the end you know gee you know we saved all of those people that's what everybody is thinking right yeah because I, I I don't know I think that Lorca is going to be some a character that is going to have to to unspool yeah. over the course of this season and you know who knows if he's going to be around after the end of the first season yeah, yeah, or yeah. not that this is already a show that is is not um it is not averse to killing off characters and we'll leave it at that but I I just think that Lorca slots so nicely into the the TOS style captain or admiral that it's really interesting to me because if you remember, I mean, it's been a while since we've done the original series on Trek about and, you know, I, I don't think that you go back and revisit that very much or, or at all. But, you know, every so often I watch the Baylock episode, but there you go. Yeah, you watch the Baylock episode and cry. Um, I love Baylock. But I, but I think that if you, you know, if you think back to other captains appearing in TOS, I mean, it didn't happen that often. But you know, a lot of the times they were kind of off, yeah. to, to put it nicely. And I, I just think that, you know, and, and I well, also think back to, um, Vo- you know, um, in flashback that Voyager episode where you know Janeway is talking about it was a different era for the Federation. You know, things were looser. The the you know we were almost at war with the Klingons, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a this is a Starfleet, and this is a Federation that still has all of its founding principles in place. Yeah, and is living up to them. But at the same time, there's also just more latitude. Things are looser. The galaxy is a bigger and more dangerous place in in this era. Yeah, I mean, all of those other captains that we see are kind of examples of what not to do, because again, Kirk is always right, you know, and if he makes an error, he's going to overcome that by the end of the episode. Same with Picard. Um, it really isn't till Cisco till we start, you know, get things get a little more difficult and we have to consider other perspectives. But when we see another captain who's doing something wrong, that's to show how, in a way, it's to highlight the moral perfection of Kirk or Picard. And Lorca is the kind of, you know, it, it, it's, I, I, well, I don't want to say moral perfection for Burnham because I think she is still figuring that out. Um, you know, I, 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 I think Lorca is her foil, somebody who has managed to make rank and, isn't maybe an exemplar of the federation uh or is you know perhaps himself scared shitless by the klingon threat and so casting aside his principles but hopefully to to rediscover them again because i think that is going to be one of the things about discovery is about i mean i think the big discovery is going to be a rediscovery of what the real core values of the federation are yeah, because I, you know, again, I, I don't know where this is going. And yeah. I think this yeah, is yeah. something that we're going to just have to keep saying over and over again to remind ourselves we don't know where this is going. But that said, I don't think it's going to end with Burnham saying, you know, I was wrong. We really should strap the uh, strap Ensign Tardigrade in. Who cares? Right. Yeah, I, I, I can't see Burnham letting Ensign Tardigrade go back into that <laughs> machine. And I, and I think that... Uh, he's. This is a thing. He's being called this, or she's being called this, or it's being called this. Um, 
But oh, I, yeah. I just I th- I I think that the core of this episode that made me so happy. You know, there's other things to talk about. We'll get to the Klingons and and etc. But and I want to talk about Saru as well. But what, the core of this episode to me is Burnham alone in that science lab and figuring it out, doing mm. the science work and. You know, coming at the tardigrade, trying to understand the creature on its own terms. You know, I'm not saying that Star Trek Discovery is doing this as well as something like Devil in the Dark. I think that, yeah. you know, that is still the the er example of that type of story. But it would have been very easy for Star Trek Discovery to to fall down a well of not doing that. And the fact of the matter is they are doing that. Burnham was proved right. Landry was proved wrong. You know, Landry yeah. decided unilaterally that Burnham was taking her time and doing things that were not necessary and let's just cut the thing open and find out what makes it tick. And yeah, on the one hand, that's a different character for Star Trek to to say that charitably. But on the other hand, we don't know a lot about Landry. We don't need to know a lot about the stress she's under. And yeah. again, she was proven wrong. She was She was killed by her own you know, pig-headedness and her own hubris. So, yeah, I mean, we don't know what Lorca said to Landry, frankly. Lorca could have been like, listen, she need once. Like, she is wasting time. She is not doing the job. She is undermining this experiment. You know, I told her, you need to figure out what it's, you know, the chemical composition of its claws. And, you know, you need to figure out how to replicate that. And, you know, what is its skin made of? And she's doing all this stuff that's not that. You need to keep her on track because she's ignoring the assignment, basically, in order to cause, you know, harm to it. You know, we need this stuff and she's fucking around. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that there is an element there as well, which is that, you know, you're right. Like, we don't know what Lorca said to Landry. And Lorca seems to me like to be the type of captain that is pushing his crew members very very hard and some of them are going to snap under the pressure not all of them are going to be able to handle this and Landry apparently did not handle it well yeah you know I I don't think that that's incidental I think that that's a going to be an important thing that the show puts forward because Burnham is very cool under pressure Saru is whatever Saru is at this point. I mean, I I wasn't a huge fan of Saru in this episode, but, you know, we can't all get what we want. But uh, I don't know. I just keep coming back to to that that moment in the science lab when Burnham is giving that very impassioned speech about going and and respecting the tardigrade on its own terms. And, And to me, that is really what the core of this episode was about. Yeah, like I said, this I, I, I the note I literally wrote was, "Oh fuck, this was Star Trek the whole time. We just didn't know it yet." And it's only episode four, so that's yeah. a good good sign. So, so let's 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 move away from Discovery for for a minute, and and let's deal with some of the Klingon stuff that's going on. And okay, so I I just want to say I don't care about this plot. Yeah, uh, I don't really either i'm waiting for it to become interesting but it's i keep waiting for them to do something different with the klingons and aside from a throwaway line that they ate captain yes okay that was a is that a thing i i I guess (laughs) i don't know i 
I, 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 I we're want... going to have to see where this goes, of course, because again, this this version of the Klingons is new and different. But I'm not super invested in anything that's going on here, and I, I just, I mean. Longtime listeners of Trek About will know that I have always said that I don't find the Klingons very interesting. I find them kind of boring. I, I don't really like them. I don't like Klingon episodes. I don't like all the machinations. I just find them tedious. And Star Trek Discovery is not changing that for me. Yeah, and for me, I like a lot of the Klingons. I love the idea of Klingon opera. I love the uh, Klingon restaurateur in Deep Space Nine. I love, you know, I, I keep joking, Klingons are Italians. But, you know, I love that very... um I mean, I really love the Klingons as Dax participates in their culture. Um, I really love the Klingon arc between DS9 and, uh, between TNG and DS9. Um, there is a lot that I like about them. So far, Discovery hasn't had anything that I like about Klingons in it. And my hope is that, so he's going to go to meet the matriarchs. He's going to go to a Klingon nunnery, basically. And, I mean, this is an option to be cool, to, to be something cool, I think. And maybe the, um, I, I, I mean, just as the Federation is trying to refine itself, um, and I think that the arc of the Federation in the, in this series is going to be that, um, I wonder if Vok is trying to be, if what he is going to learn, that the everything that he needs to sacrifice is this idea of unifying the Klingons under war and more figuring out a, I, I, I mean, what if Vok is the one who ends up, you know, getting the very ritualized, fun, passionate Klingonness that I love about Klingons? What if that's what's gonna he's gonna discover in the, with the matriarchs? I feel like it could be cool. I'm hoping it's cool, but I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I just keep coming back to to why this storyline and yeah, you know the the sort of founding principle of Star Trek Discovery when when Brian Fuller came up with the idea for the show was that there was something mentioned in the original series that we never saw that he wanted to get into and I I guess I still don't really know what that is. Yeah, and I don't I, I know Brian Fuller likes Klingons and. To me, this is just my read on it, of course, but the the Klingon stuff in this series seems to me to be a relic of an interest of Brian Fuller's mm. that the remaining creative staff is not super interested in. And I think all of their protestations, I mean, you haven't really been reading a lot about this, but yeah. you know, they've been saying like the Klingon war arc is only going to be in the first season and then the Klingons are going to go away or something. This at least this this initial storyline is going to be ended after the first season. I don't know. That just seems like them hedging their bets and saying, Okay, well, we kind of are not in love with this either, but this is what we got when we took the show over. Just we're gonna deal with this and then we're gonna go make our own Star Trek show. I don't know. Maybe that's not a fair reading of what they're saying, but I- I'm just not again, I'm just not super interested in anything that the show is doing with the Klingons. It's making them I will say to the show's credit, it is making the Klingons out to be extremely alien. The Klingons yeah. feel very menacing and alien in a way that I don't think the Klingons have frankly ever felt before. You know, the Klingons yeah. in the original series were fine, uh, but 
TOS was not necessarily what I would consider to be like a shining example of the best that drama has ever produced or anything like that. And Klingons in the TNG era were kind of cartoonish and I didn't really take them seriously. They're, they were friendly in there in in kind of a way because we have a Klingon on the bridge as one of our main characters who, you know, the series likes the likes Worf more than we like Worf, but we like Worf, and you know we meet a lot of good Klingons again, and you know the DS Nine Klingon work, it, it it Klingons become very familiar over the course of TNG and DS Nine, I would say. Um, in the same way that Vulcans are very familiar, and even Romulans are very familiar, but you know, and, and here here's where I feel both ways about it because, on the one hand, yes, there is a lot Klingon about it, but on the other hand, if you take out the name Klingons and you put in another species name, and you know, you take out Batleths, put a different weapon, you know, do a couple of cosmetic changes. Would you have any difference? And I don't think the answer is, is I, I think the answer might be no, which is kind of a problem. Again, these aren't the Klingons we know and love, but what's the point of making them Klingons in that case? Why can't they just be another species that the Federation is at war with? Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. And I, and I think that's going to be the thing that we're just going to have to wait and see on. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not, I am not sold on the Klingon stuff. And you know, I am not someone who is really head up about all of the sort of changes that the show is doing. Yeah. I think that a lot of what the visual style and stuff part of it is just updating it for the 21st century, frankly. And, you know, I, I can make it work in my own head. Yeah. I, I can't I can't make the Klingons work in this show. I, I just can't. I mean, the Klingons of we we see the the, the first we see first contact with the Klingons in the first episode of Enterprise, which we'll get to in, you know, a year or two, um, which you haven't seen that yet. But I'm not really spoiling anything because who okay. cares about Enterprise spoilers? <laughs> um, but they're they're TNG era Klingons. And then you go to the TOS Klingons, which were very different. And then you go back to the TNG style Klingons again. And now so we have this thing where there's these Klingons that are completely different from everything that we've known. And I just... Something about it is not working for me. I don't know if it's a failure of imagination. You would expect me to be able to go along for the ride here because I I don't like Klingons. And so maybe I would be interested in a different take on them. But I'm just kind of not. And well, you know, I don't don't, I'm having you know, I'm not really able to to articulate exactly why it's not working for me. It's just not working for me. Well, I mean, have you do you? know the terms in Sherlock Holmes fandom, uh, Watsonian and Doyleist perspectives? No. Okay, so all the Sherlock Holmes stories are written from the perspective of Dr. Watson, and within the world of the stories, they are stuff that Dr. Watson has published about this. And, like, all over the, um, you know, all, all over the book, Sherlock Holmes is complaining to Watson, oh, you wrote that terribly, you know, that wasn't what really happened, kind of stuff like this. So, a Doyleist perspective is that a man named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, published them, you know, that's it. The Watsonian perspective is, you know, we're going to pretend that a, there was an actual fellow named Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and that he published this. And so any errors are made from Dr. Watson's perspective in a way. So in other words, a Doyleist view of the Klingon saying, um, 
uh, you, know, you know, is saying that in the TNG, in the original series era, this was what makeup standards were. When TNG happened, there were different makeup standards, you know, prosthetics were better and they redesigned this. And for, um, you know, Discovery, they're doing another redesign because that's what they're doing, uh, you know, because updating it for the 21st century, more stuff we can do. This just looks cool. A Watsonian perspective would find reasons for all of this and say, well, why do the, you know, one of the big things that I know within the, uh, within the Star Trek fandom is trying to find reasons for why the Klingon look changed between the original series and the TNG era. I think there is something about a virus <laughs> or something like that. Something, yeah. Um, so, the, you know, so in other words, I mean, I think the Watsonian perspective can be fun, but is ultimately kind of stupid. And I'm really worried that the changes in the Klingons are going to have a reason for them. And they're trying to square these circles that don't necessarily need to be squared. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you take the Klingons as a sort of broad church, for for one of a better term, and, and just say... I don't know. It's a huge empire. There's many different types of yeah. Klingons out there. There's 24 great houses. They all have their own things going on. They all have their own ships. They all wear their own different costumes. And some of them shave their head and some of them don't. And whatever. I mean, who cares, right? Like, I don't necessarily... The thing is, like, I don't I don't have a problem with the way the Klingons look. I think the way the Klingons look, I, I it's fine. They're recognizable as Klingons to me. Uh, some more than others, but, you know, they're, they're, they're allowed to look different. I, I don't have a problem with that. I guess to me, it's just like, at this point in the show, in the fourth episode of this show, can I look at the Klingons and can I see a a consistency or or even a believability in the portrayal of the Klingons as a species? Their their kind of yeah. beliefs and their customs and these kind of things. Yeah, and, you 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 put the uh, you put TNG makeup on all these characters and have TNG era designs, but they're reading the same exact lines and doing the same exact things. Does that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that that would work. Yeah, I'm not I don't you know, and I think that that might be a problem. I I don't know. I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. I I hate to keep saying. Yeah, again, given given what they're doing with Ensign Tardigrade, um, I feel like the show has earned a modicum of trust in me on the Klingons, though. I think so. And I, I do think that the show has obviously has an idea about where Vulk is going and where that storyline is going and where Terrell is going and all of these kind of things. So, OK, I'm just going to say let's go with where it goes and we'll yeah. see what happens. Uh, if if the Starfleet story of Burnham's story and the Tardigrade and all of those characters in this episode, really sort of the meat of the episode and the Klingon stuff was just sort of the serialized television table setting and and sort of shuffling around that happens from time to time. Okay. Yeah. It, it seems more like, I mean, there is a version of the show where the Klingons are just kind of in the background and, you know, every so often they pop up, but they don't really have a plot in that way. It doesn't really matter. You know, all that matters from the Federation's perspective is we are at war with them. Um, but I don't, I mean, there are certain lines here and there that, you know, do make me prick up my ears. This one, um, uh, so the, the lady Klingon who's his second, what is her name? Terrell, I believe. Terrell. Um, and she's talking about at the beginning, they have to get some MacGuffin in order, you know, warp drive MacGuffin in order to, um, 
you know, make their ship go again. And he's saying, well, we should only, I would never get a Federation. I would never get the ship that destroyed, you know, my, my, you know, destroyed, uh, Tuvok. What is his name? Uh, Takuvma. I would never use the ship that destroyed Takuvma. And she's saying, you know, what good is purity if it leads to your death? And she's talking about, you know, how she had to build a bridge between these two houses that she was, you know, split between. And I don't know. Those are interesting ideas to me, um, given that they are, in a way, fairly Federation ideas. They're certainly very progressive for what the Klingons have had. And so I... We obviously, again, we don't know what her end game is. She is trying to play all sides, and um, in a way, she somehow some slightly reminds me of Seska in that way. But um, then again, we know in ten years the the Klingon Empire has become some sort of like Stalinistic fascist empire, which doesn't yeah. seem. I mean, so is that where it's going? I guess, but yeah, do we really need to? I don't know. To me, it's like Star Trek is very, very interested in explaining the Klingons all the time. And I'm just not interested in having the Klingons explained. And I think that's the fundamental disconnect that I'm having with this storyline. Yeah, because the way the Klingons worked in the original series was just, you know, they're the recurring enemy. You know, when we want to have an enemy that, you know, we think is particularly badass. So we use one that we've seen before. And the Klingons are They were in the original series three times. Is it really that little? How many times? Three are the, times. How many times were the Romulans in the original series? Incidentally, once. No, tw- once. Once. I th- no twice. 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 Because I knew it was. At there least- was that third. There was that third season episode where Spock fall in love yes. with the Romulan lady commander. Yeah. Okay. Um. So it's just whoever wrote the second Klingon episode happened to really like the first episode and wanted to see more of that, and that was that. And um. I mean, the Klingons don't really become interesting to me until Star Trek VI, <laughs> frankly. And I, I, I think that they, the Klingons are more interesting as an empire in decline and decadence than they are as one in power. And yeah. I, you know, is Vuk going to become the new? You know, is he going to become the Klingon Hitler, and that's how they're going to become the strong empire? Is um. Is Call going to become that? And, you know, Vok is going to be trying to, you know... But again, ultimately, whatever happens to this incarnation of the Klingon Empire, it's going to go into decadence and decline by the time of the of the next generation. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're just going to have to, to wait and see where it goes, I guess. Um, so so I think there's just, just one more thing to, to briefly mention before we wrap this episode up, or, or maybe two. But uh, we did meet... Dr. Cuthbert, I think his name is. And so uh, Dr. Risky Vasquez from My So-Called Life, yes. He's 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 looking uh, a very uh, interesting, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to see him. And uh, I would uh, like to see them make out. So, yeah. I guess, good job, show. Um, that's good. And then... No, I would, I would sleep with Wilson Cruz just because of all he's done for our community. Take one for the team there. That's such a that's such a sacrifice. You know, I I I'll just have to lie back and think of uh, Angela Chase. But um, Saru, yeah, um, I think that I mean he doesn't really have much to do in this episode. I think that he's kind of realizing exactly how much Lorca does not respect him and. Burnham also does use him in this episode. And I think that Saru yeah. is 
I don't know. Saru seems like he's going to have to have a moment of reckoning. I don't know what that moment of reckoning is going to be for him, but uh, he's not he's not a happy camper in this yeah. episode. I mean, Burnham's using of him is relatively mild compared to, you know, for example, how how uh, Lorca is using everybody else. Um, you know, she. Uh, I mean, this fear ganglion, that, that actually explains a moment from the previous episode, because at one point he, like, covers his his neck uh, in a weird way, so he's obviously, you know, hiding that or massaging that or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, what she she's doing it in the interests of kind of demonstrating that the, tar, you know, Ensign Tardigrade is not actually a threat. And again, if it's a little... You know, she should maybe yes, she should have asked him first, and but at the same time, he has he it they 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 were people who were once friends and had this major fucking thing happen to them, and they don't know how to get back to their friendship, and I think they keep it, any attempt they they try just ends up deepening that rift and it's very sad and i hope they do figure it out i mean i'm sure they will figure it out but you know i don't know because i i there was that line in the episode when saru basically says like geez you basically like made fun of me all the time and never listened to me and uh i don't know i think there's an element to saru's character which seems to be that in the last episode when he was on top he was very you know magnanimous to burnham and and now that she's back and he's not being consulted about it he's not that way well he's and... i i think there is an L, a, a difference between what saru says and what he says he feels and what he's actually doing because again as much as he talks about how he's this prey species and he's scared of everything and he has you know number one a lot of burnham's undermining is probably saying like no this isn't really you know or yes just because it's a it's a threat doesn't mean that we can't do this and i'm sure he would in his more sensitive moments consider that to be undermining him again he's the person who's saying the odds are against us we're all gonna die and burnham's saying well we gotta do this we gotta figure it out um also, we do see moments of courage in him. He does get his cool. He's a first officer on the bridge of the starship. He's not losing his shit every five minutes, as I think he says he does. And so, I, 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 I again, I, I, I think Saru is somebody who, in quieter moments, is very in his head and very, you know, very anxious. But when something is actually necessary, he can do it, and. I think he needs to kind of resolve that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. And I, I, I think that we're just going to have, again, I hate to keep saying this, but we're just going to have, to yeah. see it goes. <laughs> but it's fun again, funny to say that, but you know, you, in some ways, uh, again, you, you know, we're on an even footing for the first time in this, in this entire podcast. Um, I think on both this and tuning in, um, cause anytime, that there has, you know, we, we haven't done any shows that I've seen that you haven't seen yet. And, um, th- this moment of, I'm not really sure where this is going has been some of the joys of stuff like DS9 for me, especially. Um, and even that wasn't quite as planned as this season is. I, I mean, at this, before they, I, 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 my understanding is that this season was written or at least, uh, you know, p- 
plotted out, outlined as one piece. Um, it's not like they did episode by yeah. episode. Um, and DS9, you know, the most you can say is, well, they, you know, th- they had a several episode arc that they had planned out and they kind of figured it was going here and maybe they had these ideas, but, you know, that was about it. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting narrative pleasure that I, I, I find the different styles of narrative very, very interesting in this franchise. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the last thing I'll say about that is, is that, you know, one of the things that I've realized over the, the, I guess, five, five and a half years now that, that I've become an accidental television critic is that, you know, I really care more about character than plot. Oh, yeah. And, and for me, a show is going, I, you know, plot's fine and plot is, is, you know, what keeps you engaged sometimes. But Star Trek Discovery, to me, is really going to fall down to, do I like these people? Do I like spending time with yeah. them? And is this show going to have the staying power that, for example, The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine have with me? The answer is really going to depend on how the characters shake out and not necessarily how the plot shakes out. So, you know, for me, it's like, yes, I don't know where this is going. That's kind of interesting. But to be yeah. honest with you, do I care that much? No, no. I, don't. I mean, like, p- plot is a way of revealing character for me. And I think that, you know, having certain specific plot points and seeing their reactions to this is the interest of plot to me. I'm not one of those where, and I mean, I know this is a very popular style of criticism and a way of viewing television where, wow, you know, and spoilers and stuff. And I mean, I know we only sort of care about spoilers. And for me, it's more because, you know, how is everybody going to react to this? Um, if right. Burnham is any indication, uh, most of the people on the Discovery have reacted to this Klingon war very poorly. They have not figured out a higher purpose from this and... I mean, I think Lorca's entire purpose is we've got to win the war. And everybody else is kind of, well, we've got to do what Lorca says. And, you know, the Anthony Rapp character, his purpose was at some point just the pure joy of scientific discovery. And, you know, this has fucked that up for him. Um, They all have, yeah. you know, Tilly has this, you know, desire to get ahead, but I think there is a, you know, she has that one line like, oh, my, the only thing my mother ever said was cr- criticizing my hair, um, which is beautiful. And, you know, maybe she is trying to get ahead so much just to, you know, try and get her mother's approval desperately. And Burnham, for the first few episodes, has been very lost. But I think she's finally figuring out what her purpose is and what it means to be a Starfleet officer, whether or not she... It has the rank of one or not at this point is irrelevant. She is a Starfleet officer, and there is a certain respect for life that she needs to make her purpose again. And I think by the end of yeah. this episode, she's clicking onto that. And she's also clicking onto the secondary one of, well, how do I get the people around me to realize this? Right. Because I, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say is that I, I think that I. I think that's the the point of that final scene in the episode where she she watches uh, the the hologram mm. message that the Captain Georgiou recorded for her, yeah. and, and it's I, I think in some senses this this first season storyline to me is you know Michael Burnham's redemption, and and that scene specifically to me is to remind 
the audience and to remind Burnham of who she let down and what she is doing and why she is doing this to, to redeem herself. And it's not really about redeeming Michael Burnham specifically. I mean, we saw in the last episode that that she was very, very willing to go back to prison. She she feels mm. a responsibility to to pay her debt to the Federation and Starfleet, but she's in a position where she can honor the respect and love and admiration that Captain Giorgio put in her for those seven years by helping yeah. the discovery. And and I think that's you know where she's at at this point. And I think it's a good place for her character to be. Yeah, that will and testament was intended from Giorgio's part to be listened to in a universe that where 40 years from now, Giorgio died of old age and, you know, Burnham in her captaincy, you know, maybe is, you know, getting an existential crisis and sees this and reminds herself and she has these people under her care. Again, just because she doesn't officially have, uh, have Tilly and Anthony Rapp, I oh, will never remember his name, and Saru and all of them under her care. Lieutenant Stamets. Lieutenant Anthony Rapp. Um, Lieutenant Mark from Rent. Uh, just because she doesn't officially have these characters under her care doesn't mean that she can't figure out a way to help their well-being in that way. And again, I think she, you know, obviously she owes it to Giorgio, but she also owes it to that, again, all of these characters had a purpose. The war came and fucked that all up, and that doesn't mean that life stops and that your original goals need to stop. Again, it's easy to say that the the hard choice is we're going to kill them all, you know? That's not the hard right. choice. The hard choice is to stay who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like that, that line in the original series when Kirk says, you know, the the choice is is not that we're not going to kill it's that we're not going to kill today mm. you know and i think that's in a yeah. certain sense star trek discovery really seems to be taking that that speech in the original series to heart so we'll see where it goes i suppose yeah what if that was the line that brian fuller had uh meant this series to be about only he knows, and I, I think that we'll never know at this point because he's no longer working on the show, but it is what it is, I suppose. Well, if you have any thoughts on The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry, please go to truckaboutshow.com and leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast. We have been getting quite a few comments, more than normal, for our Star Trek Discovery coverage, which I don't think is really any accident or surprise. But uh, We love it. I good, love it. We love it. And there are some good comments over there, some good speculation, some some good uh, re, you know good responses to, to the podcast and to, this, and to the show. So please do go over to truckaboutshow.com and, and check that out. Uh, you can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. If you would like to support our podcasting endeavors with some of your hard-earned money, it does also support our other podcast, Tuning In. We are currently in the third season of The X-Files, so do go check that out as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, truckaboutshow is in all those places. Truckaboutshow is our username. And as always, please leave us a Apple Podcast review for Truckabout. We have a new review, it was left on October 4th, which was only a few days ago. It's from JWF 
who says, I absolutely love you guys. Your podcast is fantastic. I love the unique perspective both of you bring to Star Trek. I'm looking forward to watching the rest of Voyager with you. I love you, JWF, or whatever your name is. Thank you very much, JWF. We are looking forward to watching the rest of Voyager with you. All right, next week, we continue with Star Trek Discovery. We are going to be talking about Choose Your Pain.